0: We break down all things queer and unqueer in each episode of The Wilds. My name is Rachel, and as always, I'm joined by my wife and the love of my life, Allie. Hi, everyone.
1: Allie, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about our final duo. We're talking about Shelby and Dot. The Texans! The Texans. So, we always start off with a spoiler, content, and language warning. So, spoiler wise, I mean, if you haven't watched the show and you somehow stumbled upon this episode, kudos to you. You are in the wrong place. We are going to be talking about things that happened across season one. So, you definitely want to watch it before you kind of jump into this episode. And then, content wise, we always put a mature content warning on all of our episodes because of the ways that the wild works through some really tricky pieces. But in particular, this podcast episode, we're going to be dealing with like A lot of potentially triggering subjects. We're going to be talking about substance use. We'll be talking about mental health. We'll be talking about suicide. We'll be talking about assisted suicide. We'll be talking about sexual abuse at different points. And so just know that this might be an episode that, yeah, there's a lot of uh, complicated parts to. And then finally, uh, language warning, we are going to swear throughout the course of this episode, so don't be surprised. And so as this episode is our very last duo episode, we dedicated our first one. Um, we're actually going to dedicate this one as well. So this episode, Shelby and Dot's episode, is dedicated to Alley. So you are someone who I have talked to on like a weekly basis since sort of like the start of the podcast. Ale is also someone who has like talked through theories with me, talked through sort of characterizations like worked through some of my like really obscure weird thoughts about the show and also was just like such a genuine and kind person and shelby and dot are two of your three favorite characters and so i really wanted to dedicate this episode to you because i don't know it just felt right and i just wanted to let you know that i value everything that you've kind of like talked to me about and helped me think through
0: yeah we see you we appreciate you and this one's for you so typically we begin these duo episodes with a short arc summary of each of the girls that we'll be talking about today. And so Allie, I was wondering if you wanted to start with Shelby's arc summary.
1: Yeah. So Shelby Goodkind. She is a pageant queen from Texas, raised in a very Christian household, and has like a really strong connection between religion and sort of her, her sense of self-identity. We trace her backstory through the lens, kind of, of her relationship with her best friend, Becca. And so while we're sort of unpacking and seeing this, we start to understand that, you know, Shelby is not only sort of struggling with these ideas of performativity, struggling with these ideas of perception that are really forced on her by her family, but she's also struggling a lot with her sexuality. And especially um, around the idea of reconciling her sexuality with her faith. On the island, we see a hyper-performative version of Shelby who is really projecting this facade of who she thinks she needs to be. She bonds a lot with Martha in particular, which causes a bit of friction between Martha and Tony and between Shelby and Tony as we sort of like navigate these dynamics of, you know, who is closest with who, who is paired with who, and who is building relationships with who. Shelby continues to work through her understanding of herself and her understanding of what it means to be gay and also what it means to be gay in that space. We see her as probably one of the fullest arcs um, that we get, sort of come around from being in the island and being in that place where she hates herself in a lot of ways to coming to a point of acceptance towards the end of the show, or at least a willingness to explore it further. I say that her arc is one of the fullest, but I do think there's still a lot more to unpack as we move into season two, because we gloss over things a little bit at the end, because that level of self-hatred, that level of pain that Shelby has, doesn't really dissipate over the course of a couple of days. So what's interesting about the Shelby and Dot
0: duo is I love that the way that the show did this, where similar to Rachel and Nora, which we talked about the last episode, Rachel was episode two. And we really got to see her change throughout the course of this series, knowing her full story. And that's the same with Dot, whereas we saw her really early on as part of the episode three. And then we get to see how that informs how she approaches the island. And then in contrast, like Nora, similar with Shelby, Shelby's episode is later in the season. And so we get to see this extremely, like, happy-go-lucky, optimistic, kind person who clearly, like, also is working through some things. And then we just get to see that totally dismantled in her episode. So I think you summarized that excellently. Shifting over to Dot, Dot's a fave in this household. She's resilient, she's resourceful, and she's our resounding deserted island partner of the season. Dorothy Jane Campbell left a life where she was extremely depended upon to an island where everyone's survival now depends on her. She was shown as a lone wolf back in Texas, navigating high school and dealing drugs to support her dad, who was navigating, essentially, palliative care. But she quickly almost sheds that lone wolf exterior and becomes this trusted leader and confidant of the girls, and the best friend of also fanfave in our household, Fatten. Dot's forward-thinking and open, she manages to see the best in everyone, and is a constructor of their island society as one that is tolerant, supportive, democratic, and features a good sense of humour.
1: So throughout the course of this episode, we will be talking a little bit about how Shelby and Dot individually exist and relate on the island and in their backstories. But also about how they relate to the other girls and how they relate to each other they are a duo they're an interesting duo too because while they had knowledge of each other going into the island and were childhood friends of sorts they didn't have that kind of close relationship that rachel and nora had or that tony and martha had so there's a lot of like parallels with them to leah and fatten in particular in the ways that they're learning and relearning each other on the island and they're also understanding how their perceptions are both different and similar. I think probably a good place to start off for the two of them would be thinking a little bit about isolation and the way both of them see isolation and think of isolation because there's a lot of like really interesting layers in there. We're going to come back to this dot quote a few times throughout the episode because it's
0: also foundational to her relationship with Fatten and many of the other parts of how she navigates the island, But I'm just going to read it here once and then we'll refer back to it moving forward as I think it plays and sets a really good foundation for the theme of isolation. This quote is from Dorothy Jane Campbell. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) When you run in a pack of one. Sorry, I'll read it like a normal person. When you run in a pack of one, people make all sort of assumptions. Deep down that it bums you out. That you'd give anything to fit in. But maybe I just didn't have time for that shit. It's interesting because the way that Dot sees herself and the way that she talks about her backstory is how she runs in a pack of one. And really early on, parts of her island journey are like this. So a good example is when we see her go to get the slide and she's like hauling it back and then runs into Fatten. And even later on when she goes for a hike with Shelby and Shelby runs away, Dot makes a huge help sign. She really takes on a lot of the responsibility herself a lot of it falls on her shoulders she's kind of the early person who is thinking about what they need to do to get out of the situation and it mirrors her pre-island life extremely well and that the overlay that leah's voice says in episode one is taking on too much
1: yeah and dot has this really interesting balance Um, I often find kind of with Tony a little bit and that that idea of being things being safer when you're alone and so Dot isolates herself kind of in line with that so there's a lot of like safety in that but hers is a little bit less safety oriented and a little bit more productivity oriented in a way and and so she sort of sees like relationality she sees like friendships she sees all these things as sort of a waste of time in some ways, or she doesn't see value in them, especially in her sort of pre-island life. I think that definitely changes throughout, but th- I agree with you. There are so many ways that even when we think about her utility, we think about her resourcefulness, she uses those as pathways to separate and hold herself separate from the group a little bit.
0: Well, and even in her pre-island life, something that always struck me was when she comes home and we see her dad, he, her dad is like, don't let Mateo in the kitchen. He doesn't know how to cook. And so even though she has that support available, she's the one that's doing the cooking. And similarly, even though it's Christmas Eve, she's the one that is doing the laundry. Mateo, I think, isn't supposed to be there, but she's still the one that like takes that on, even when she has the supports in place. So it's really interesting to see that almost dismantle a little bit over the course of the season. I mean, culminating in her big... Burnout, which, like, she took a half day off. Like, I wouldn't even call it a full day off. Like, she got called back into work, you know? (laughs) Uh, But it's really interesting to see that be sustained, but
1: slowly but surely dismantle over the course of the season. Well, I think she finds a lot of self-value in being needed and helping people. And those leadership roles, like, definitely not in a way that is, like, exploitive or anything like that, but I do think... She feels that, you know, being useful and having a purpose is kind of like a top, it's like a top priority and it's something that she wants to be. You know, it's it's interesting when you think about Dot and Shelby's backstories because, you know... We never see Dot in Shelby's backstory, but we see Shelby and Dot's, right? And it's really done through this lens of her sort of like looking over and seeing Shelby having these relationships and things. And I always connect it back to to when Shelby and Dot are taking that walk and they're talking about how Dot's been not pictured in the yearbook. For Shelby, like that's concept of like being present, being seen, being remembered, which is a really big one for her. Like she's always concerned with, who's going to remember you and who's going to like memorialize you in that way. And that's a big fear of Shelby's is that nobody's going to remember her. So they have this sort of tension between this, but I think they also have this like tension between the ideas of being seen and being not seen and the way that they think about seeing in different ways. So Dot thinks about the way that she sort of navigates this world, navigates high school under this guise of invisibility and how she sort of like is able to use it. Um, a to keep out of trouble when she's dealing but also to just be able to do the things that she needs to do but i think conversely for shelby she feels too seen and too watched which she really gets into with tony and, and she feels the weight of that in a different way. But I even think the way they talk about being seen is different. So Dot's a little bit more about like the physical seeing or the seeing the work that she does or the seeing the value she holds. But for Shelby, there's a bit of more of a danger in being seen because I think she connects that as well to like being actually seen. So being seen for who she is and like what she is because she is like dealing with her like sexuality as she's moving through these pieces.
0: Something I like to think about is what do the girls do when they're most free? And so the discussion where we really talk about freedom is between Tony and Shelby and both of them are saying that neither of them were free in different ways with Shelby feeling like she's always been judged and Tony feeling like she had too much freedom and not enough support. And so it's interesting if you even think about that for Dot because she's on this trip to like get this freedom to some extent. You know, you're gonna pay me to go on this trip, you're gonna keep those narcs down at child services. It's a step in between for her for freedom, but it's even interesting to see the way that she navigates it as still being someone you can really count and rely upon in the way in which it's just kind of a continuation of her life in a lot of ways in a way in which she doesn't take the freedom that shelby takes when she kisses tony
1: well the two like shelby and tony are really interesting around that right because tony talks a lot about like safeness and being alone and like how when you're by yourself you can only hurt yourself and like thinks a little bit about you know the ways that she holds herself separate and how that is a protective factor for her and Shelby also talks about, though, like dangers in being seen, right? And the the dangers that can kind of come when people see you for who you are. And so it's weird because they do mean the same thing in ways. Because even when Shelby, like Sh- Shelby self-isolates herself, right? She like holds back those pieces of herself. It goes into some of those performativity aspects that she does. But she keeps that part away and in a way like isolates herself because nobody truly knows who she is in a lot of ways because she's holding that so close but both of them are talking about the danger when people see you the danger when you get too close and when you share a piece of yourself and you share a piece of yourself in a really tangible way they're both kind of talking about how you are giving someone a tool to hurt you in that act and how They're both scared of that in a lot of ways and there's so many like pieces in that and how they like break that down and like actually move into like trusting each other and trusting another person and understand that you can't always walk into a relationship with the fear that you're going to be hurt because you'll never build anything tangible. And so kind of in that act like especially when we're thinking about Shelby's backstory she really like fills in that line that Rachel has where it's like surrounded but alone right and so like because she's not revealing those pieces of herself because she can't accept those pieces of herself she isolates herself even though she's surrounded by people and I always think about like what that looks like on the island and the different ways that we see Shelby kind of shift through her existence right so throughout sort of like the first chunk of the season like she's very involved in all the group stuff she's very like involved in those pieces and she's like very active in the group but it's when that sort of flip happens when the plane flies over that we see her actually take a step back and isolate herself and in part this is because she needs that space she needs that privacy to deal with those emotions but I often wonder in like what ways her isolation isn't just about giving her space to breathe and work through her emotions but also feels like a little bit of an act of penance for what specifically happened with Becca if we think about that relationship we think about that final fight and we think about the way that Shelby's relationship with Becca kind of ramped up and enhanced throughout that episode we really see the ways in that Becca felt that Shelby was her person she was kind of the only person that Becca still had to hang on to you know, there's mentions about you know when Becca went away, like when she was 5150 and she kind of went to take care of her mental wellness. A lot of their friends really separated themselves from Becca, and so when she came back, Shelby was that person. Shelby's mom talks about it. Becca talks about it in that fight, but because Shelby has isolated herself in that moment and pushed herself back in that moment because she's so scared of letting someone see the true her that she can't actually also see the way that Becca needed her. So by cutting off ties with Becca, by the things that she said in that fight, she in turn isolated Becca in a way that was incredibly dangerous, right? And so always careful when we think about like what happened in that fight, about understanding how like it contributed to Becca's isolation and how that isolation then contributed to Becca committing suicide right and so understanding like yes there's a relationality and a causality but like the things that Becca were going through were larger than that they were larger scale than that but when I see Shelby on the island separating herself like she does during ocean party day when I see her sort of like struggling with alcohol and stuff I do wonder like is she punishing herself in a way is this an act of penance for what happened with Becca is she isolating herself because that's what she did to Becca because she not only isolated Becca by asking her to hold back a piece of herself but isolated Becca fully by not like bringing her under that umbrella and having that sort of like connection or relationality with her that Becca was clearly really craving
0: I have things to say about this but first I just wanted to call an introduction to a new segment of the podcast called ally uses a big word which may or may not have religious literary or other analytical <laughs> undertones and not it's everyone not even might... that big of a word i mean it's yeah like letters aren't everything though okay right like so can you
1: explain what penance means So penance is an act of remorse. And so it does actually have like a lot of religious undertones. Like if you think about doing things like confessing and then you're asked to do like penance for what is like deemed quote unquote a sin, right? So it's an act of remorse. It's an act of sort of redemption, of self-absolvement, of mortification. Um, But it's an act that's really done to show sorrow in a lot of ways. Well, and I, I, I like
0: this word. It's a new one for me because as folks know, I'm not a big religion guy, but I love the very physical symbols of penance that we see Shelby. I think the biggest one, and we'll talk about this later on in another episode, so hint, hint, nudge, nudge, there's at least one more episode coming, that Shelby and Becca have matching double crosses, but then Shelby later on the island, we see her with the turned cross necklace. So that's one example and the other example I'll say is Shelby wears a lot of different clothes in her time on the island, but one of the times we see her wear an item of clothing from home is a jean jacket, and she wears it in episode 8 in her episode when everyone else is having a beach party and she's getting drunk. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's the same jean jacket, or it's meant to be the same jean jacket as the one that she's wearing in that confrontation with Becca. And so it's a very physical sign of demonstrating kind of remorse and sorrow and how she is maybe conducting herself differently this time around
1: well it's almost like like piece of like pieces of clothing can really like take you back to a particular place right or take you back to a particular feeling or a particular time and I often think about like what the weight of that jacket probably feels like because that was the last time she saw Becca because of the things that she knew she said when she wore that. And so I don't think she would be able to sort of like separate that from be wearing it on the island. I think when we think about harming people too, there's always so many parallels between Tony and Shelby. Both of them have like a very similar line through the show where they talk about how, you know, we have a knack for truly failing each other. And that idea of, you know, we are always on a path to destruction and always on a path where you're going to harm people. And I think Shelby really takes that to heart and she sees the harm that she's caused and the harm that she has the potential to cause. And she never knows who to align herself with, whether it's her family, whether it's her religion, whether it's with the girls, whether it's with her heart. And she often struggles with that. But something I think about a lot is in what way Shelby's story and her inability to kind of determine who she should align herself with is a self-fulfilling prophecy So if we think about the ways that Dave told her that, you know, if you choose this way of life, you're going to end up alone. And how choosing it in her real life isolated her and also choosing it on the island isolated her. Her choosing religion, choosing something that she doesn't fully believe in, isolates her no matter what the situation. It isolates herself as someone gay in her faith, but it also isolates herself on the island from the rest of the girls. And so by doing this by struggling with this in what ways does she fulfill what dave said that you'll end up alone and in what ways does that like cause or intensify i guess the struggle that she's going through
0: and i'll say too just as we wrap up this part shelby is isolated from the girls for a few days yeah and so we hear them kind of allude to it when Fatin and Leah are talking about how Shelby's been doing all the chores, essentially, and so she's trying, again, some repentance. I oftentimes, now that we've been through it so many times, I sometimes forget about the time gap in between, but I just really wanted to, like, hone in and call that out because it might be one that otherwise we just glaze over really quickly, but it was a few days where, after the muscle gate situation, before they were able to move on, and that is... Probably one of the deeper conflicts that the girls had because it spanned so many days. And it was very much uh, all the girls versus Shelby in that situation.
1: One that's so connected to the way Shelby values herself and the way that she sees her value. In the same way that we talked earlier about how Dot really connects her sense of value to her utility, Shelby does it the same way. Just it's a little bit more subtle than the ways that Dot does it. You really see it at the beginning. The first few days, she is so focused on doing actions. Um, She's like out looking for water and counting pop cans and like doing all this stuff to support Dot, but also to sort of like prove her usefulness in the group. And we see that shift a little bit as she starts to kind of like struggle internally and try to work through those pieces internally that she's doing and she can't focus externally and think about survival as much in those moments. But as she comes back and as she actually starts to accept herself and feel a little bit more comfortable in her skin, she moves back into doing those bigger movements. She moves back into doing that sort of goat hunt with Tony and Martha. And so she wants to do those things. She wants to be useful in those ways. And even when we're thinking about when everyone's really mad at her and when she's running around like, her reaction to that, her reaction to sort of validating her presence in the group and validating her worth is exactly like you said, is to go around and collect bags, is to take care of the fire, is to take on all of these physical tasks because she's so scared of being alone and being isolated and she wants to find that place. She's trying to validate her existence in the group with her ability to do these pieces.
0: Well, I think it probably ties back further into her backstory and so I think about the ways in which Her and Becca stuck together in the ways in which they stuck through everything that Becca was going on. And I think part of the reason for that, in addition to, like, obviously they had a really nice friendship, is Shelby feels and looks so uncomfortable when she's in that pageant space. When she asks the girl beside her to, like, borrow Vaseline, there's, like, some weird looks exchanged. When they find out that Becca has passed away, the stares, that, like, judgy, kind of catty teen girliness really affects shelby and i think that also ties into some of her comments about how she always feels judged and she's very good at pageants so i think that probably also isolates her as well but i just wanted to call that out that she doesn't really feel comfortable to date in other spaces that have been really female dominated in the way that the island is as well
1: when i think about how that fear of public perception whether that is Her church community, whether that's her family, whether that's the girls on the island, really governs every single move that Shelby makes. How scary it must be for her to worry, you know, that she might get quote unquote cancelled when that's almost what happened with her dad, right? Like, so the ways that the girls isolating her mirrors what happened with her dad and her just wanting to make herself so indispensable. But I think she always feels like she's falling short of some sort of perception or some sort of thing that she's supposed to meet. I think we all resonate on that scene where she sings at the end of episode eight a lot and think about like what a moment of being watched in that level of pain would feel like. And I often think too about like what unsettles Dave so much about Shelby's song and unsettles him so much about like what she's doing. And I feel like it's this this way that Shelby in that moment is depicting faith in a way that he finds unflattering, right? She's putting in all this pain and loneliness in her faith over joy. And so it's once again, that sort of like sense of like cracking this perfect image of religion and cracking this sort of like perfect perception. And so it kind of like undermines his arguments to her in a way about how like oh if you're you're gay you're going to be alone when you're standing there in your faith and you're standing there in your community and you also feel that kind of level of isolation.
0: I think it's interesting in the context of Shelby too because I think the girls for some reason generally don't give her a lot of latitude for all that she does contribute and bring whether it is Tony being so cued in and cautious to shelby right away and shelby's friendship with martha and we we've talked a fair bit about the line in particular when tony is like oh there's a bunch of rich white girls on this island god will never let them perish but there's only two (laughs) and so that's interesting two rich white girls on the island but similarly even dot reinforces this and we'll talk probably more about this scene as we go through the episode but when they go on their hike and shelby kind of talks to dot and brings up the not picture girl and that sort of thing dot's first reaction back to her is i had high hopes for you out here you went to go get the water and it almost just like it just undoes and dismantles all the work that she had done to date and similarly Yes, what Shelby said was like problematic and homophobic and all of that. And I appreciate Dot's directness in the moment. You know, you can't have those beliefs. But she's not ever given a lot of latitude, with the exception of Martha, who does try to talk to her a little bit about it and does it in a way that's a little bit more careful and, and open than the ways in which the other girls kind of shoot her down.
1: Well, it's interesting the ways that everyone puts expectations around her, right? Like we talk a lot or we think a lot about the ways that there are less expectations on the island but that line with from Dodd is a perfect example of people expecting her to be this survival person. Tony expecting her to operate in a certain way or act in a certain way. Martha's surprise over Shelby being so angry at Tony. People construct this version of Shelby and I think she makes it Easy, I guess in certain ways because she's she also has constructed this piece about herself that people set these expectations or these parameters for her that then every time she fails to meet them just like smashes her to the fucking ground.
0: And in a lot of ways, they don't give Dot that same level of care, too, like the ways in which they're forcing Dot into this leadership position, the ways in which they look to her to make these big decisions. So it's interesting that the two of them, for some reason, seem to have the most expectations surrounding them. In contrast to Fatten and Leah, who have that similar kind of relationship to them, you know, it's one thing if Tony and Martha have expectations of each other, or Rachel and Nora have expectations of each other. But Fatten and Leah, Fatten does fuck all, respectfully. Sorry, Fatten. And Leah's like, we love Leah. Don't get me wrong. We've gotten some hate mail about our Leah passion. <laughs> um, but, you know, we let Leah just kind of run around doing whatever too, going into the water, etc. But both Dodd and Shelby have such heightened expectations between each other. They share it as a duo, but also the other girls upon them.
1: And I think they both struggle with it actually in the same way. They both struggle with the fact that these expectations have been put on them and are kind of unconsciously being continued to put on them by getting to this point where they feel like the only person they can rely on is themselves. And so because they're so scared about these additional expectations or failing these additional expectations that are being sort of mirrored or projected onto them, they really reinforce the sense that like they're the only person that they can rely on that all of that strength and all of that resilience has to come from within, as opposed to seeing the places where other people can help you build that up. And it leads oftentimes to this really destructive self-talk that they do, where they in turn also kind of cut themselves down, which is very much connected to our episode title for this one, which Shelby says to Dot when Dot's really upset at herself about
0: The major closeout sale.
1: Major closeout sale. Everything must go. Um, But it's it's what Shelby says to Dot is, don't talk about my friend like that. And I think it's such an incredibly powerful line because in that moment, Shelby is reinforcing that, you know, Dot didn't fail anyone's expectations. Dot didn't fail her expectations. And that level of, you know, self-hatred or self-doubt or self-tearing down she wasn't there to, like, see that. And she wasn't there to, like, handle that. And, like, I mean, it resonates with me a lot because, like, so, like, my biggest thing is, like, I'm, like, super chill until you, like, fuck with my people. And then I'm, like, nah. But it's, like, that same... <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but, and then I get, like, yeah, anyways. um, We don't need to go into it. <laughs> we don't need to go into it. <laughs> but I think it's, like, it's that sense of protectiveness that Dot probably hasn't received in a while. That sense of care that Dot hasn't received in a while. And I think it's really powerful that it's coming from Shelby to Dot because it's reinforcing the ways that they both can support each other and that they both see each other in important ways.
0: And there are many examples of that. Once we see Shelby's flipper and she talks to Dot about not telling everyone, Dot's like, I'll take it to the grave. And like, we believe Dot, like Dot will take it to the grave. I mean, now everyone knows it's not a big deal, but. And similarly, Dot says to Shelby, someone who she hasn't really known directly for a very long time, you know, for what it's worth, I think you deserve better than Andrew. We see Shelby defend Dot when they're thinking about opening the black box. Shelby is very much saying, we shouldn't all put this on her. We should vote. Of course, one of our favorite quotes is a Dotism. You know, she's not Jason Bourne. I've heard her rap on the morning fucking announcements, you know, defending kind of Shelby's honor, if you will, and that she's not some slumber party spy. And so the ways in which they support each other, it's always really interesting because in these moments, you don't often see these like looks between them, like these meaningful looks where after they defend each other, it's like, oh, I felt that, like our souls are warmed kind of. It's just this like really their connection and bond that after they kind of get everything out on that hike, you just see it reinforced
1: throughout the rest of the season. Well, I love the way that Dot does it too, right? Because even when everything's going on and and Shelby's kind of being ostracized a bit, Dot kind of like comes in in that moment and she's like, yo, I know she said some problematic shit, but that doesn't mean that like she doesn't deserve like a bit of care in this really stressful situation. So like the ways that they hold each other accountable while also understanding what the other person needs is really beautiful too. Yeah. Some of the other things that she shares with
0: Shelby are when it gets really quiet after they have that big fight, Dot says to Shelby, aren't you going to suggest some never would I rather shit? (laughs) As well as when Dot is cleaning out the goat and Shelby comes back, she says, hey, big game hunter. And so again, that care with a bit of sense of humor too is, is really important and something we see from them.
1: Well, something I really like about that is I find that like Shelby has a tendency to take herself too seriously and take things too seriously. Sometimes it's like, in contrast to other pieces and bits and i often like if you watch her backstory i find becca like causes her to lighten up a lot and like creates situations where she can be silly and lighter and i find dot does that sometimes on the island too creates these like really beautiful moments where she can laugh because i think humor is really tricky for shelby and the way that she understands humor and also understands her role and what it means to her is a bit complicated
0: and humor's really interesting because we see Shelby when they're on that hunt for shelter, I guess. That's what they're on the hunt for, right? It can't always yeah, be a hunt. I know,
1: you You just want to, like, play on the hunt for fatten, but, you know, yeah, you you go, you name it. I call it beach walk. Beach walk? <laughs> they're not even on the beach. They yeah, they, they are. Forest. They're on the be- They only go in the forest when Shelby gets attacked by the fucking snake the majority of the other time they're on that fucking beach. No, no, it's a ha- cave hunt. Okay, you can call it cave hunt. Not the hunt for the cave, though. You look so angry about it right now. You can call it whatever the fuck you want to call it. Your book, Cave Hunt? No.
0: (laughs) And thinking about the Shelby humor, we actually see a moment when the humor doesn't really go over too well. So as they're looking for the cave, Shelby spots one amidst Dot's monologue chastising Shelby in some capacity. And Shelby goes in the cave and pretends as if there's something that's got a hold of her, etc. And then Dot pulls her out, and of course, this is one of the moments, it's one of a couple of moments where we see Dot like genuinely scared. And when Dot's really scared, you can see the emotion everywhere. It really affects her in a different way. And what's interesting about this piece is that in the field notes, there's a comment about how the Goodkins are really big pranksters. And on the one hand, you can look at that and say, oh, you know, like, that's fun. And, like, cool, good kins. Punch on the arm. I thought hardware was like tools and nails and stuff. You know? So you can also see... my favorite, like, Spencer line ever. I mean, it's the only Spencer line. <laughs> anyway, so you could look at it and say, oh, yeah, ha, 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 good kins with your tall doorknobs. But... <laughs>
1: If the- one hasn't listened to episode eight. They're gonna be like, "What the fuck are you all talking about?"
0: <laughs> the doorknob's are really high. They're yeah, really high. Uh, anyways, I'm t- Allie. I'm sorry. I'm like- trying to tell a story. I sound like you telling a story. <laughs> oh fuck off! <all>. Uh, <laughs> I'm a terrible storyteller. Yeah, the I get lost you
1: know. in the details. <laughs> yeah
0: that's why every podcast episode
1: is like five years long it's just all it's one big story yeah, you, you, you never heard the the unedited version of it it's uh takes me a little while sometimes i like scale out my point or build out my point until i get to it right just like you could have said that in like five words and i'm like yeah yeah no cool story Sorry. bro but <laughs> okay 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 i'll set you back up all right you ready yeah okay field note Good kids, pranksters, might seem fun and lighthearted. Har har har. Har har har. But... The
0: other approach is it's tied to this, like, good performativity trademark pending. Which is that it leads to this series of gotcha moments in the good kin household that creates this more unsettling tension. And what's really tricky about that kind of gotcha energy, is the ways in which we see Dave use power. The key example is the cereal bowl incident. That could have been a joke, right? Like we could have been like, no sugary cereal, like I'm gonna throw the whole thing, ha ha ha, but it's not. And there's a really fine line between that gotcha prank moment and intentionally tricking people or not being truthful with people or not being your full kind of self and putting on a facade. So I think that's really key. We think about even Shelby and Shelby's sense of humor is that to some extent, the way that humor has been used in her life has been used against her.
1: Well, the ways too, that living in a household where there are pranks and there are pranks, which sometimes are a little bit layered and potentially like rooted in something not very nice. How that really reinforces that sense of always being on your toes of always walking on eggshells and that would have already been present for shelby right but how that really reinforces that that just that sense of instability and that sense of just wariness that you would have at all times not knowing whether something was going to happen as a joke or whether it was going to be serious right and like how that affects your sense of safety when you're in that space and how it affects the communication
0: in the family too.
1: Shelby's mom has to communicate
0: with Shelby about how Shelby doesn't need to do everything that Dave says through the death of a salesman monologue, which is only makes sense when she goes to this island and it's interpreted by Nora. Like that's the layers of deception and manipulation that she's working with in constructing how she sees the world and how she communicates and exists in the worlds. So I think this is as good a point as any to talk about performativity. And I can't believe we've actually made it this far into the episode without chatting about Shelby's flipper. And so we see this be a huge part of a lot of different storylines. It leads to a huge confrontation with Leah. Where is she running off to all the time? That suspicion. It's kind of a little bit of the basis of hers and Tony's relationships. And we haven't talked about it yet. Ugh, shame on us. What are we doing? I don't know.
1: We should just scrap the whole first chunk of it. Scrap (laughs) the pod!
0: But something that I want to flag... I looked really carefully at this when we watched the most recent time. And the first time we see Shelby on the island, she holds up her flipper and she says, Motherfucker! Which is the first time she swears. And she doesn't swear again until episode 6, which is a fun fact. And we see that her flipper is cracked. Now, when the plane started to have the turbulence... She's in the bathroom adjusting it, but we see it back in her mouth when she's praying as the plane goes down during Lynn's episode. And so it makes me wonder, did the research team
1: crack her flipper? They would have had to crack her flipper. Like we saw them moving the girls, right? Like I often wonder about their injuries a lot because we saw them. I mean, they would have passed out on the plane. And then we saw a bunch of them on these, like, carefully put on these stretchers. And, like, sure, it's, like, Leah looked kind of thrown in the boat, but, like, that's not enough to crack your flipper, right? And so when we think about things like Tony's ears bleeding, is it Tony's ears who's bleeding? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, Tony's ears bleeding, and, like, this cracked flipper, it's like, what, like, what did you all do to them? And, like, I can understand pieces wanting to be, like, rough them up a little bit so they're not suspicious, right? Because they did survive a plane crash. But the cracking of the flipper would be, it would have to be so deliberate.
0: It's interesting because you wonder, like, was the injury that they sustained tied in with their psyche in some way? Like, what would make it most believable to them? And like, because it's tied to Shelby's vulnerability and performativity, having that crack in her flipper make it feel the most real because it affects her and it affects the vulnerability more? I'm not sure. Or Martha, Martha's ankle. Martha's already had an injury and that's also tied to like her trauma and her experience. Or her
1: ability not to be able to walk. Yeah right? So if you think back to, like, Martha's story, I did not even thought of this. Oh my god. Yeah, this isn't isn't (laughs) on the sheet. This is rogue. We're all going rogue. No, no, no. But, like, think about it, right? So, like, think about when Martha fell on that trampoline, and then she couldn't walk, and she had to relearn how to walk, and how her ankle being, like, swollen and twisted on the island would have been, like, so connected to that, like, taking her back to that place where she couldn't walk, and also taking her back to that place where she experienced trauma.
0: The brownie cake with Rachel, because her body wanted to get rid of it, also was reinforcing. Leah being on the raft alone, having to make it through probably, like being that most direct person in the water with like the most to navigate to get her
1: to shore. Well, if you think about Rachel, too, even when Nora tells her that Nora had to bring her in, you think about the ways that Rachel is so resistant to anyone else taking care of her. And so we don't really actually get to, like, dig into that. She seems a bit more grateful of it. But think about how that would have felt to her. She doesn't want to rely on Nora for anything and to know that Nora was the one who pulled her in. Scratch. <laughs> well, I mean, also, like, just, like, the terrible, like, image of... Alex out there, hurting people, like being like, oh, gotta twist this girl's ankle. Oh, gotta make this girl's ear bleed. Like, right? Because Daniel wasn't on staff at that time. <laughs> yeah, because there wasn't one hundred percent. Daniel out there on the beach, like <laughs> that. That I believe. But also, like, I God, I think about Alex and I'm like, oh, Alex. I mean, there's other poor people. guy. Yeah.
0: Anyways, that was riveting. We tried to talk about
1: the flipper because we wanted to talk performativity So let's get back into it. <laughs> Well, I think the most we ever see Shelby as, as like as a part of this current timeline, like the most performative we see her is on the plane. Her flipper is intact. Her accent is the strongest we ever hear it. All of these ways, like the break in her flipper, sort of like the ending up of her in the island begins this sort of break in performativity and begins this sort of like descent where she starts to kind of like peel back the layers to who she actually is. I struggle with Shelby's flipper a lot because man, I feel for this girl, but also just like the way that it makes her feel because it's so reinforced to her from her dad, from Dave that like things that are imperfect are unlovable. And so how much weight is she carrying with these like quote unquote imperfections that she must feel like both being gay, but also like her teeth. Right. And so if you think about sort of those concepts around um, you know, you hear it in a lot of stories sometimes, right, about how like ugliness comes through and like how you have these like sort of like physical manifestations of personality defects and how she must feel like her teeth represents that in a way. And that's why she's so determined and so desperate to be able to fix that, A, to like protect herself and like also protect this like thing and also not to feel like she's faking, but also to like make herself lovable and make herself feel like she's worth it in a way and it's just like yo fam it just like breaks my fucking heart because I think about that line from her dad and then that line she kind of echoes back to Tony like when she says to Tony like you're not worth it when they're on hell beach right when she when she says that that concept of worth and the concept that you only put effort and energy into things that are worth something and like when she's talking to her dad and he's suggesting that like a the cereal bowl is disposable things that are imperfect are disposable when he's suggesting and talking about the ways that some people aren't worth redemption or aren't worth saving or they hit this point where they're they're just they should be discarded they are disposable how that connects to her sense of wanting to be worth something and how her sense of wanting to be worth something is tied to both like physical beauty but also to like devout faith is tied to like all of these sort of layered, nuanced perceptions that have been impressed upon her.
0: And it's interesting because we see and hear Shelby really internalize the flipper. And so at first when she asks Dot not to really say anything about it, Dot's initial response is, My fucking kingdom for a problem as big as some dentures. And Shelby's response is it feels like a super thin wall holding back all this ugliness. And what's really interesting is also in this episode, it's Dot's episode, episode three, Dot is talking to the detectives about how it feels like there's this dam breaking. And so both of them use these really interesting metaphors about basically a dam breaking, you know, a wall holding back something that's kind of rushing out of them. And so, again, I think it it ties into their duo and that understanding that they have of each other and the ways in which they support each other from that point on too.
1: Actually, you're bringing up the detectives and I kind of want to talk for a second just about like Leah and Shelby and the detectives. I mean, Leah and Shelby are so interesting in sort of like bunker land because they're the two that want to see each other and they're the two that pass the note. But I also think there's some really interesting pieces that happen in the way that Dan interviews both of them. And I think for both of them in different ways, he implies that their nature poses a threat and really reinforces that. And both of them have a bit of a history of that, right? So like Leah has that with her parents who say that she's unwell and like all of these things and say she's posing a danger to herself. They don't know how to reach through to her. And Shelby has that from Dave and has that from him saying that there's something wrong with her. And then Dan reinforces it with both of them. And so like Dan and Dave are doing this sort of like thing where they're trying to convince Leah and Shelby that the way that they are is wrong. And they push back against it in really different ways. And they push back against this concept that anyone else can sort of define what is correct for them or who can put them in this box or put them in this place where they have to adhere to standards that they didn't self set. And even Dan, the way that he describes Shelby, he, ta- he talks about her feelings being painful and frightening. And it's just these words, these words that put them in this place where they feel like they should be afraid of like the, le- like, the level of emotion that they have. They feel like they should be afraid of those pieces. And I've just, I've been thinking about this too, even like, because I was really paying attention to the interview that um, they did with Shelby even the way that they talk about you know that shift that happened on the island when all the things started going wrong but the way that they're talking and the timing that they're talking it's easy to think about it as like oh like post like you know the plane and and they're hungry and maybe there's some people who get injured but in what ways is dan implying that shelby accepting herself started to create these situations and started to create these sort of like disintegrations and things and how she must connect that with her. So you're saying all this bad stuff started to happen and it's almost impossible to separate that probably for her from this sort of like moment of revelation that she had. Well,
0: just thinking about the detectives a little bit more, I love the ways in which Dan is performative with both Leah and Shelby and we see it in their clothes in particular. So Dan makes a comment to Dean suggesting I need to look like you in the G-man suit to elicit the authoritative tone to get the response out of Shelby that we're looking for. But in contrast, what he wears when he goes to Leah's room is he's not even wearing a tie. So most of the other girls when he's doing it, he's wearing a sweater on top of a shirt and tie. But when he goes to Leah's room, he's just wearing an open shirt, no tie, sweater on top. Very relaxed, very different but what's really neat is the Dan and Shelby performativity because as we just talked about we see Shelby kind of move away from that performativity on that plane where she has the Texas accent and she's talking about Jesus and God and then we see her lose that and then we see it come back and one of my favorite lines and I can't even remember what comes before or what after it but when she's talking to the detective she says sirs and I laugh every time because she calls them sirs And she's super Texan and she is just kind of playing up this character. And I'd be remiss to not talk about Dot. I want to posit that actually Dot is the most uncharacteristic of herself in the interview room. On the one hand, we see a really carefree Dot leading up to the the dancing scene with the drumstick, but we never even see her get to that level of carefreeness in any other point. And so, yeah, she, like, orders a bunch of food, she, like, has a big snack. But in a lot of ways, to me, it feels as though she's just, like, building up this ammo. She's building up this presence of her to the detectives as somebody who's just, like, happy to be kind of saved. I think she's playing them, too. The moment that I notice it in particular is when they're talking about leadership. And Dan inquires to Dot... Did Rachel bother you in her approach, that ambition, that drive? And Dot says something along the lines of, no, I thought it was great. And so I think Dan was really digging for this, like, leadership conflict, this transition of power that we know Gretchen is really interested in, but Dot doesn't bite, and I think Dot really feels that and sees that that's what they're trying to get out of her.
1: Well, she's so low-key, right? Like, and she really brushes off her role on the island right like even when she's talking like one foot in front of the other like yes those things are all true but like in a lot of ways and i've said this before they're only fucking alive because of dot right totally and so she really um demeans her own role in a certain sense and some of that is that sort of self-deprecating humor pieces that she has or like the ways that she cuts herself down but some of it is a little bit calculated and a little bit planned because she actually, in that moment that you're mentioning, puts way more leadership role on Rachel in a way that isn't actually accurate to what we see on the island. Rachel's, like, leader in charge, like, once of the whole group.
0: And, and to some extent, you think, okay, well, maybe there's other things that happen. You know, we know that Rachel lost a hand. We know that there's probably someone missing. Like, and so maybe we've seen Dot really internalize those things before. But if she was internalizing it, the way she's behaving, this, like, I've been rescued, I want blue crab sushi doesn't align with how we've seen her internalize things
1: in other situations. Dot's leadership though in general on the island is just one of the most interesting things. If we think about leadership, we think about traditional leadership. I often find that like Rachel has a lot more of those like traditional leadership kind of things and often pieces that you really associate with sort of like male dominated leadership. So sort of that going in and tasking people and saying like these are all the things and those sort of like high scale project management kind of pieces but dot like leads by lifting other people up and that's the really important difference is she gives people who have often had power stripped away from them accountability she gives them tasks she gives them responsibilities and has this faith in them that they're going to meet them in a way that actually pushes other people to meet those goals. And I think she believes in them all to a point that when they don't meet those places, it it almost devastates her in a way.
0: Yeah, and I think a really good example of this is she gives a lot of trust to Leah. In the episode where they're all sick because of the muscles, she has a nice side conversation with Leah where they agree that they're both better off than some of the other girls, and Dot assigns Leah the role of going to get the med bag. This is the episode where Leah maybe sees, maybe doesn't see Shelby, we're not sure, and the med bag tips over and she loses a lot of the pills. And I think what really hurts Dot is not that she comes back and she doesn't have everything, But the lapse in time and the lapse in judgment that it takes for Leah to come clean, I think really devastates Dot, as you said. And so she gives Leah so much trust in that moment. And that trust is not only that it's Dot's trust, but it also hinges on the wellness of everyone else. And so she expects everyone else to kind of uphold that same standard. And then when Leah erodes it by making the wrong judgment call with the following of Shelby and leaving the bag unattended, but then further... Erodes it by not coming clean right away. It's just really upsetting.
1: Well, Dot's like me, okay. (laughs) So like, I feel like I've talked about this before. I don't know if it actually made into a podcast, but like, I very like much implicitly give my trust to people until they break my trust, and then. But like, Dot does the same, right? She like Leah does build trust with her and shows that she's responsible. But Dot also gives her that trust. She gives her that belief, and she believes that Leah is out to protect the group, and it's not that Leah isn't out to protect the group, but what Dot underestimates in that moment is the amount of like shame that Leah has about some of those like mental health pieces or the amount of like shame that she has when she does things that are detrimental. So in that same way that, you know, Dot holds herself to a high standard, Leah holds herself to a really high standard as well. And so when Leah doesn't achieve that, when she doesn't meet that, she feels shame in a lot of ways over it. And like I do think that that's one of like the key pieces that stops her from revealing what happened, right? She's, she's ashamed that she followed this specter of Shelby through the woods and result, like and the end result of that was that the med bag fell and spilled.
0: So it's funny, Allie, because you just mentioned, we've talked about this in previous episodes, that you trust everyone, with your exception of you don't trust religious people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> until they prove they're not homophobic. So we've also learned this ep- episode that Ali's people are really important huh. until uh, someone double-crosses them and then she's mad. And I just wanted to say one of Allie's favorite songs is Goodbye, Earl, and it haunts me <laughs>
1: Me and my sister sing it all the time. We know all the words, but we don't... And like your really- mom, and you yeah. all sing
0: it in the car, we- and, then and it's we- just me <laughs> hoping you're not going to make some jam.
1: <laughs> well, we don't really sing it. We, like, shout the lyrics to it, like, at the top of our lungs. Thank you, Dixie Chicks, for that banger.
0: Anyway, so what's interesting, just, you know, thinking about you, Allie, is also thinking about Tony and mm-hmm. how Tony comes to trust Shelby. And so it's kind of a weird scene, that cliffside scene to some extent, and you and I have talked about how yeah. maybe it's to, like, finish up this queer storyline, but how Tony kind of goes out of her way to tell Shelby that she trusts her.
1: Because she saved her life. It's a very weird scene. But the pill
0: scene is really weird. Mm. And, like, the ways in which, you know, Shelby on Hell Beach tells Tony that she's not worth it. Shelby then saves her life. Then Tony's mad when Shelby saves her life. And Parrot's back. I'm not worth it. I'm nobody. Martha is a good person, etc.,
1: cetera, et cetera. And goes into trust. Well, the pill scene in general is interesting because Shelby connects it so much to Becca. And so she connects that fear and that insecurity over who she is to the damage that she caused Becca and the ways that, you know, she wasn't able to help Becca. And so in that moment with everything that's going on with Tony, like that's the reason why Shelby has to be the one to give her the pill because she has that overwhelming urge to save someone and not for another person to be harmed based on who she is right she needs that sort of like connection she needs that kind of redemption arc in a way whereas it would have been just as fucking easy to hand the goddamn pill to leah right but like shelby in that moment is like there's something that she's like i have to do this but i think it's all looped back to like to this concept of trust and just bigger in like who you who you like trust to do things but also who you like trust to help who you trust to hurt you trust to keep secrets and like the different layers that exist in there between the girls overall I think those are like such important pieces to think about the ways that they trust people in in different avenues and the ways that they let the people they trust hurt them or they let them help them and so I don't know yeah it's, it's interesting if you think about Dot like implicitly trusting everyone because definitely Tony comes in and trusts no one other than Martha Martha is Tony's person and so that contrast between those two different ways of approaching things but the interesting fact about it that like both of them get to the same point so even though they're coming from polar ends of complete trust and complete not trust they get to that same middle ground where they have trust of everyone who sits around like that circle of the unsinkable eight
0: what I like to think about how other duos map onto each other, and you know, with Shelby and Dot, it's interesting because there's a, a clear parallel to Leah and Fatten, in the way that Fatten supports Shelby by encouraging her to talk up at the cliff, and also Leah supports Shelby in the train wrecked Unite Seed, but also how Dot supports Fatten and Dotton, of course, our favorite friendship as well as with Leah and the ways in which she supports and rescues Leah in various capacities too. But I also like to think about the Shelby-Dot with Tony and Martha because the scene between Dot and Martha after the goat, Dot really cares for Martha in a way that none of the other girls, with the exception of Tony, can care for her when she talks about making sure that she's holding up okay. And we even see Tony when she comes back from being with Shelby. It's interesting because... Tony says, Martha's at your go, and Martha goes to Tony and says, I know you're not really keen on being in the buddy system with Shelby, and Tony really quickly says, she's okay. More importantly, how are you? And so I also just think it's really neat to just think about how the other duos map on and support each other in ways in which they have similar or different roles within their partnership as they do when crossed with other duos.
1: Well, I always, I love Leah and Shelby, and it's something I'm really hoping for more of in season two, because... The way that like they give each other care is really powerful and the way that they kind of validate the feelings of the other um you know it all kind of like comes together in that scene on the beach right after shelby's like cut her hair off and they're they're talking about like the things that they're looking for but there are so many moments before where shelby in particular goes in and validates leah she goes in and and talks with leah about her feelings or like takes a moment just to share words with Leah and if we think about that relationship between Leah and Fatten like that is what Leah is searching for right she wants those words of validation she wants those words that speak to the pain that she's going through but also share that they understand it right and so in a lot of ways like both Shelby and Fatten do that we just often associate Fatten as doing it a little bit more closely.
0: Well, and more on Shelby and Leah, something I think is really interesting about the two of them is they're the people where the literature is really important, if you will. So we talked in Leah's episodes about how she's like the first paragraph in Jeffrey's book, how she's like Carrie, she wants something to happen to her, and how that is eventually tied to her journey. And similarly shelby has the death of a salesman monologue which is all about kind of being released from her father's expectations and so the ways in which i think they kind of find themselves placing themselves into like other worlds or other situations i don't know i just think it's it's interesting that it's those two characters where like another narrative plays such a pivotal role to their understandings of themselves
1: last episode of the podcast I started talking a little bit about the interesting parallels between two trios, right? And so like the first trio being Dave, Shelby, Becca and the second one being Rachel, Nora and Quinn. And the ways that those stories are very similar and so kind of like what I had shared is like if we're thinking about you know the intense connection that Shelby had with Becca and that Nora had with Quinn. And how they let this sort of like external piece or this external party being Dave for Shelby and Rachel for Nora really disrupt the balance of that relationship, which resulted in them pulling away from that person and then eventually that person dying, right? So the ways that those stories kind of arc together, I think if we're thinking about loss and we're thinking about like the pain of loss... I really like the way that Shelby and Nora's stories mirror each other. So they lost someone without that opportunity to say goodbye. They lost someone um, without that space to sort of remedy the relationship or to reconcile the relationship. But then like the contrast of that on the other side of like Dot, who similarly went through like a catastrophic loss, right, of her dad, but who was there, right? And Mm -hmm. so... Where like Nora and Shelby heard about the passing of these people in like very disengaged separate ways. Dot was there when her dad passed. And so that sort of like tension of pain that exists where it's both painful to have not been there, but also incredibly painful to have been there. And sort of like the ways that those kind of, well, they're dichotomy, right? Like, but the ways that they kind of push against each other and like both are devastating in their own ways
0: so moving into one of our duo bits we pick three words to describe each of the girls that are a part of the duo as well as three words to describe the duo itself Allie, i was wondering if you wanted to start with your three words for shelby
1: all right my three words for shelby so the first one is forgiving i think she comes into things with a really open heart and She's someone who understands growth in people and who understands the ways that people need space to grow and need to be given grace in order to grow. And so I think she's very forgiving of things that are said to her that are harsh, things that maybe hurt her, and she's, she's willing to kind of meet people midway for those pieces. I also have under this list protective. I think she's protective of the people that she loves, but I do think she gets a little bit confused when those forces are opposing. And so if you think about protecting her family and being a part of her family versus protecting Becca, like I think she struggles a little bit to navigate that. But I do think at her core, she wants to protect the people around her and she wants to protect the people that she's decided are her people. The last word that I have for Shelby is brave. I think she is brave in a lot of different ways i think she's brave in the way that she navigates the world i also think we see so many moments where she saves people on the island like when martha's being pulled out by that like weird whirlpool she doesn't think she just goes she just moves right and so she's brave in that sense too where she's willing to potentially put herself at risk for the people around her and also brave in the way that she navigates through emotions and obviously like I always like want to say like no one is 100% something so there are ways that like her emotions and her sense of the world scares her and she shies away but I do think she's working towards that really strong sense of self and that really strong sense of bravery where she's understanding that she's everything that she needs but it's just an ongoing process you don't like get there when you're 17 all of a sudden
0: No, great words. I almost wrote down brave, so I'm glad that you picked up on that. It totally resonates, and I think the words that you've picked are great. Would you like to hear my words? I would love to hear your words. Well, first and foremost, I know it's pronounced good kind, but Shelby, she's good and she's kind. I honed in on kind. Those are two words. I honed (laughs) in on kind. Kind is my word. I deserved that, though. Um, So I I just picked straight up kind. I think the way that she conducts herself... It goes along with those expectations because she treats all the girls with such kindness up front. And I think some people are so skeptical of it, but like, you know, she's just kind. She treats people the way that they deserve to be treated. She's like a golden rule follower. So the next word I have for Shelby is rueful. And riffle is is an interesting word because I think Shelby kind of carries around this pain and it's this mask in which she interprets and approaches the world where, you know, she carries that regret and that sense of remorse, particularly with Becca. And we've talked a lot about how she changes the way that she conducts herself on the island as a result. But from like an outsider perspective, it's like a little bit funny. And so like a key example is like, of course, she's really struggling with her sexuality and that really has an internalized pain, but she also just goes around smooching ladies. And so I just think it's just, like, a little bit funny uh, because it does, like – and I think, like, she almost finds the humor in it, too, and, like, I think that might be how she can come out the other side of it is, like, through approaching the world in that way. But – so I have rueful down here. And the next word and last word I have is asparagus. <laughs> what? Well, I, it's – because, you know, like <laughs> – pick one word and I can only so I picked asparagus keep going okay I feel like there's I couldn't figure out the word and so Allie maybe you know what the word is but like you know how asparagus when you plant it it takes a couple of years but each year that it like goes to seed it grows back harder and hardier yeah and so like that's why when you plant asparagus it takes a couple of years for it to become edible because it starts at really seven years yeah yeah. and then it gets really established and then it always comes back like more bountiful yeah (laughs) yeah but I couldn't like I tried to google like what's the word that asparagus does when it plants and it reseeds itself but I couldn't find the right word it's like a resiliency it's like a, a recovery it's like a regrowth but it's that ability that like every setback actually like bounces back harder she like comes back sturdier and stronger like asparagus <laughs>
1: the scent of it is beautiful but just the moment when you said asparagus
0: <laughs> yeah so Shelby Goodkind kind, rueful asparagus <laughs> Do you know what the word is though? You like know what we're talking about? Uh I'd have to think- And can about it only it. be one word? Because it's only one word, I'd think asparagus is a leading candidate.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think about it. I'll yell it out in the middle of the night. I'll just like wake up and just shout it. I'll scare the fuck out of you. Alright, Rachel. What are your three words for dot? And I'm really hoping one of them is not a vegetable. You're in luck! None of them are vegetables. Sweet. One of them is a fruit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The first word I have for Dot is sturdy. And I mean that in the way of like all the different things that she takes on. She's so dependable. She's so reliable. And people are able to lean on her and she's able to like hold them up using the ways that make sense for them, that are good approaches for them. So I have sturdy for her. The next word I have is nurturing. And so the way that she cultivates relationships and she knows, again, kind of what works best for everyone around her is very nurturing. It's interesting because she's not particularly like, I think sometimes nurturing is interpreted as like a gendered word, like a mothering type of word. And it's not necessarily like what you would describe Dot as on face value, but the way that she cares for people, and again, that flexibility to adapt how she approaches things is very nurturing and thoughtful, nurturing. And last but not least, it's diligent. She's really diligent, again, in that approach and that how she cares for people, but she also is forward thinking. She's the one that says to the girls when they're all fighting, she says, I've been thinking, we're probably not in the news anymore. And that is a part of a shift that happens with the girls where they change from kind of living in this like past version of themselves and like living in this, we're gonna be rescued situation to this might be a little bit longer. This might be part of our forever. And so she's very diligent in the way that she approaches survival and how she's always kind of thinking about what's next. And we see that in many other examples. And of course that's why she was our deserted island partner of the season
1: too. Allie, what are your words for Dot? So my first word for Dot is rugged. I think it's a good word. Um, And so I think like Dot really is rugged in many different ways. Like, you know, she's like physically strong and kind of can like handle a bunch of different things, but she's also like emotionally rugged. Like you can throw her around a bunch and like she will still accomplish whatever she was trying to get. And I mean, she can be like rugged to a fault and like, and sometimes it does come at like the detriment of herself but she's very like rugged she's very adaptable she like makes sense in a bunch of different situations and she's like able to do that in like a really good way i also have down realist um i think she doesn't sugarcoat things she's very easily able to step back and kind of see the reality of the things around her she doesn't you know she's like you said she's the one who's like i don't know if people are coming to save us so we need to think long term She's like, we, she's always thinking about the next thing they need, the next piece they need. And so I think that that's a really core part of both of her value on the island, but also of her as a human. The last word I have for Dot is empathetic. I think while she doesn't always, in her, you know, fight for practicality, have room for emotions or have time to give emotions like thought or space, as she's also you know, worrying about keeping them all fucking alive. In the moments that matter, she's empathetic. In the moments that matter, she sees the pain that other people are in and she connects with them in a way. It's why she's not just like the person who's like physically protecting them, but also the one who is like mentally and emotionally protecting them. And she finds ways and spaces to validate the people around her, to care for the people around her and to understand what they're feeling in, a, in an important way.
0: Allie, I think those are great words. None of them were edible. None of them are what? Oh, are edible. (laughs) I'm finding those words a little hard to palate. (laughs) Stomach. I'm not eating up
1: those words. God, I love you. I love you too. (laughs) Uh, Should we do our duo words? Yes, please. All right. So we also like to do three words for the duo. I can start off with mine. So the first one I have is good humored. Both of them, great sense of humor, able to make people laugh, whether it's sort of like that more dry, sarcastic thing that Dot does, or it's a little bit more focused on sort of like that warm hearted kind of joking that that Shelby does. Both of them are very good humored.
0: There's a hyphen there, right?
1: There is a hyphen there. No, there's not a hyphen there. (laughs) Okay just drink keep going <laughs> Fuck. it's okay you had good and kind so
0: no i just had kind. i was just making a joke on the play on the name mm,
1: okay 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 i also wrote down for both of them that they're resilient this is like connected to like my rugged for dot and things but like both dot and shelby have gone through some like extreme trauma and stress in their life and have like continually come out stronger as a result of that. They get battered around a bit on the island, but they just like continue to work towards their goals and work towards the things that they feel like they need to do in a really beautiful way. The last word I have is builders. Did I sneak a look in your notebook? Because Rachel, every episode, uh, like, tracks who each character interacts with. And did they both interact with every single other character, at least in some tangible way? Yes. So I think that uh, Rachel's face right now is like, my privacy. Both of them are builders. They're community builders. They're relationship builders. And they do that work in a really thoughtful way. And so they're always building relationships with individuals, bringing the group together, whether it's games, whether it's group activities, they have sort of a passion for that and an understanding of the ways that relationality strengthens like people's access to supports and the way that it actually makes like them as a group stronger together.
0: Excellent duo words, Allie. None of mine are vegetables and all of mine are one word. So the three words I have for their duo... I think first and foremost, we've talked a lot about this as we've described both of them, but for me, it's caring, the way they care for each other, and also how they approach everyone else with that same level of care. I think it's really an intuitive and innate part of their duo is, is caring. The other piece I have is Hardy. So similar to how I described Dot as sturdy and Shelby as asparagus, I wanted to really <laughs> pull it together. There's a hardiness to them both, and there's a hardiness to the enduring presence that they have in each other's lives and the way that they're moving towards really seeing each other and really building this enduring relationship. And so it's always really struck me that Shelby is able to recount all the ways in which they've overlapped. And Dot isn't quick to talk about Shelby, but we see Dot see Shelby, and more than that, the Jason Bourne announcements, Dot's really aware of Shelby, even if we don't always see them together in each other's backstories. And so I think they're really cultivating and building a hearty relationship. The last word I have for the two of them is reinforcing. And so I think they reinforce each other's leadership, they reinforce each other's strengths, And they reinforce how each other interacts with the other girls. And there's a supportiveness to their duo that I think is really important to capture. So reinforcing.
1: Oh, that's beautiful, honey. The next kind of thing I wanted to sort of like chat through is this concept around the things that you want and the ways that you go after the things that you want or the ways that you limit yourself from going after the things that you want. You know, you talk about the ways that dot is really aware of shelby and you know we see this in the show too like we see shelby at least once in dots episode but we don't see dot ever in shelby's episode but we do hear shelby talk a lot on the island about dot and about her remembering dot as a child and i think about the ways that the two of their lives live in tension and the things that they both want live in tension And for me, like, I feel like they both want what the other had in a really interesting way. So, you know, Dot looks at Shelby and she sees Shelby's friends. She sees what she perceives as a carefree life. She sees all of the ways that, you know, Shelby has this life that appears absent of stress, of pain, of struggle. Obviously it's not, but that's the perception that Dot has. And so the ways that, you know, Dot wants that, the ways that, you know dot would look at shelby's family at you know sort of like this three kid family with like two parents we don't really know what happened with dot's mom other than that gretchen is dot's mom theory but in, in the ways that she wants that and she wants that stability and she wants other people around who could help shoulder the burden that she feels solely responsible for in her own household and so that's for me one of the reasons why we see shelby so much in dots episode because Dot looks to Shelby and wants what Shelby has. Conversely though, I think Shelby wants what Dot has. Shelby has this facade of a perfect life, but there are cracks in it. There are ways that she feels unwelcome, unsafe, unloved in the in her family and in her house. And when she talks to Dot about Dot's dad, she has all these like lovely memories of him being the soccer coach, of him playing air guitar with them, of the love that she sees that Dot received from her dad. And I feel like there's an edge of jealousy in there. She wants that relationship that Dot has with her dad. She wants that sort of unconditional love that Dot has with her dad. Even the way we see their houses are in such stark contrast. Shelby's house is very like neutral tone, kind of cold feeling. When on the other end of it, like Dot's house is just like exploding. Like her artwork is everywhere. Like, like kid artwork is like on the walls and there's pictures everywhere. And all of these like remnants of like a house full of love and all of these like depictions of a house full of love. And so they both want what the other has without really understanding what the other has, right? Dot wants Shelby's family, wants that, that sort of, perception of, of who Shelby is without understanding the weight and the pressures of that monitoring of that controlling. And conversely like Shelby wants what Dot has without understanding like the pain and struggle of being the only person holding your family up.
0: I think that's excellent, honey. And I think it's really interesting even to think about when we hear Dot express things that she wants or doesn't want. So an example, and I've read the quote out loud before She talks about how when you run in a pack of one, people make all sorts of assumptions that maybe she really wants to fit in, or she really wants this, like, to be surrounded by friendship or that sort of thing, but she didn't really have time for it. I think it's so interesting and beautiful that she finds Fatten extremely early on. And it's interesting because in the same episode that Dada's sharing about how she runs in a lone wolf, we hear Fatten talk to Tony about how this is why she doesn't get tight with girls because of the drama. And so the way that they find themselves together in this like extremely easy friendship, I think is really neat. We're big Fatten fans in this household, but I just wanna hone in on one of the first words that they say to each other is Fatten says, let's just say I've had a shitty few years and Dot says hard fucking same. And it's interesting because certainly we saw this very long game of Dot with her dad moving slower and slower. And certainly we saw this pattern with Dot's dad. So it seems like it extended for a good period of time. But what's interesting is with Fatten, we know it happens really quick. And we talked a lot in Leah and Fatten's episode about how quick it happened from exposing her dad to being on the plane. And so I love this for both of them, this friendship, this relationship. I think one of the creators, I think it was Sarah, said like they're each other's first best friends. And so I think that's really beautiful. But I also think there's something more there that we're gonna see further play out, which is we saw Fatton's really intense kind of six months or shorter. But she reflects and refers back to having a lot more pain and heartache. And we do see that in her family. We see that she wants to not play the cello as much as she does. We see her having the release of sex. And so I think there's more to Fatton's storyline, which I hope they'll be able to kind of help each other work through in that like way a best friend can.
1: Well, I'm interested to see what it looks like too, because in a lot of ways Fatten's story mirrors Shelby's more than it does Dot. If we're thinking about parental pressure if we're thinking about the role that like faith plays in your house, if we're thinking about the way that, like the role that wealth plays in your house and the way that fear of public perception, like all of these are huge things for both of them and huge things that both Fatten and Shelby struggle to adhere to this sort of uh, perspective of what is normal, of what is authentic, of what image that their parents want to project into the community. She doesn't find that with Shelby though. She doesn't relate to Shelby in that way. And some of it is some of it is like the way that they both tackle wealth is a little bit different, right? Like Fatten's like family's a little bit more like opulent about it. And so like, you know, she talks about going to like Barcelona and like doing all of these big trips and like where's all designer stuff. And, you know, assumingly Shelby's family is also just as wealthy, right? But the ways that they spend that wealth is different and the way that they understand like that wealth is different, which is interesting. Well, and
0: it's interesting because I think this is our favorite melody line. It's November daddy. Yeah. Because I think in the field notes, they talk about the song he's singing and how it talks about New York or Chicago, but how they'd never go there because it's like sinful or something like that. I can't quite remember the field note, but it's interesting because like, yeah, the trips aren't necessarily a part of it. Another fun fact parallel I want to just hone in on, and maybe this is like me and Allie going a bit too deep, but the cereal bowl, this sugary cereal, we've talked about that a lot. In Fatten's episode, behind the parents when they're talking, you can see a cereal box of Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Very like sugary type of cereal. And so,
1: Also the, my favorite type of cereal. I mean,
0: it makes the best milk. Yeah, it's, it's just, just it's just delicious. That
1: Nesquik, Nesquik makes good milk too. Yeah,
0: and so just thinking about... And maybe it was just, like, a set design piece, because there's also, like, there's Cheerios and Dots episodes, sorry, like, I went deep dive cereal box. (laughs) Um, But I just think it's interesting the ways in which control and wealth and power, uh, and it just kind of plays out in cereal.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting the way that, like, Fatten's parents think about wealth as the way that it gives them status. And like status in their community, right? Like, that's what they're talking about, you know, when, when like Fatten's mom closes that deal and they're talking about like calling all the other realtors and like, you know what I mean? Like, it, it gives status in a certain way. But for Shelby's family, like, there is status attached to it, but like, it's more about like the devoutness of their faith and her father's role and sort of some of these pieces around conversion therapy and like his presence as like a leader in the church. That is like more connected to like wealth in those ways, right? And and to status. So it's just, yeah, it's just the way that they, they approach it is very different. I think too, when we talk about that line where Tony talks about how many white girls are on the island and we're always like, there aren't even like how many rich white girls there are. And we're like, there aren't even that many, Tony um like the other one that we often think about is leah who obviously is like wealthy to some degree because of where she lives and goes to school and like all of those pieces but i think even she has sort of like a like a contrast to that and that you know when we see her house like her house isn't absurdly flashy and so it's like that other version of a story as well
0: yeah i don't think that i saw any cereal boxes well i don't think we were
1: ever in leah's kitchen
0: you can eat cereal anywhere.
1: Yeah, it's true. It's a it's a household food. <laughs> um, but I want to talk actually a little bit about, like, if we're thinking about the things that you want, about the parallels between Leah and Shelby and this concept of, like, forbidden love and also, like, who are we allowed to love? Because both of them, like, situate themselves in their sort of, like, past stories as people who there's something that they want, right? Like whether it's Becca or whether it's Jeffrey and there's like pressure that they're facing about that relationship, not being right. And then they kind of like crack under the pressure of that. And like, obviously like when we're talking about like an adult having sex with a teenager versus like Shelby being gay, two totally different scenarios, but the way that they experience them is kind of in line and the way that they struggle with this idea of loving someone who then They're either shamed for loving or um, who's been like taken away from them. There's, it just mirrors each other in a really nice way.
0: Well, and similarly, there's a parallel with Fatten and Dot as well. And so when they do the Good Morning America kind of shoot, Dot says, You know, Fatten, remember the guy I was telling you about? I'm gonna go home and smooch and sleep with him. And Fatten's like, Oh, yes, Nurse Mateo Caliente. Like, so. Number one, I just think it's the way that they express the depth to some extent of Fattens and Dot's relationship. Like, yeah, maybe they still talk about sex and love, but also, like, they don't just uh, swear at each other. They have, like, some depth to them. But also the ways in which they're kind of seeking after this traumatic kind of island experience sex.
1: Well, they use, like, sex in a lot of ways as sort of like a connection tool, right? You know, it was Leah and Fatten's special theme for their duo episode was sex and love, right? And the way that they connect and utilize that as as something to bond over, something to connect over. Shelby uses it a little bit differently, which is funny. And it's, it's not to Leah because Leah's got her own thing going on with Fatten, but it's more in the way that Shelby uses like concepts of having sex or not having sex to really bond with Martha. So Martha and Shelby, rather than like bonding over sex, they bond over abstinence. It sort of like reinforces this idea that, you know, experience or like lack of experiences aren't your only place for commonality. It's also these perceptions or perspectives. There is like a weird disconnect that exists there because when we see in that first episode when everyone takes a shot over the however Shelby words... I don't remember.
0: I have it written down, but I've already said it out loud one time. I'm not doing it again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, both Shelby and Martha bond in that moment because they haven't, but they look the same, but they're not acting like they're coming from different places. And so it's kind of like a funny way to bond because, you know, Martha spends most of the season looking for relationship advice. She's looking for advice on how to get with boys. And so her abstinence is a little bit more about circumstance Where Shelby's is a little bit about who she's coupled with, i.e. Andrew, who we hate, and also like this illusion of choice. And so what I think is like, oh, it hurts a little bit. But like Shelby bonding with Martha over this and over abstinence and thinking that like it's it's a choice in the same way that Shelby thinks of it as a choice. Mirrors Shelby bonding with Becca over the same thing. They come from the same root. And so think about that scene in the bowling alley when Becca, who is like so upset about like what happened with her stepbrother, shares with Shelby like, oh, I didn't know if I could tell you because, you know, we promised we wouldn't do those things. And then thinking about, you know, Shelby bonding with Martha and that same sort of like concept grounding it, that same sort of like concept of like abstinence and faith really grounding it. Then also like, I don't know, fam, I feel for like Shelby because that Martha thing is going to come to a head and like all the ways that Martha and Becca parallel each other, like both as people who have like very early like sexual trauma and then like who are like still struggling through that and the ways that they're the same is like going to like crack the fuck out of her. But one of the things that I think is kind of beautiful about this arc that Shelby has with sex is is everything that happens with Tony. And I think if we're thinking about the Shelby who kind of came into this season, the idea that she would like have sex with Tony after they like kissed once feels a little bit out of character, but I think it's kind of symbolic of her discarding that sort of last piece of her faith, right? that sort of last piece that was holding like her her abstinence and her commitment to abstinence is so connected to her commitment to God, right? And like, that's where that comes from. And it's almost like a piece that like, you wonder, did Shelby ever like, get a chance to really question if that's what she wanted? Is that something that's actually important to her? I would assume the answer is no. And sort of in those moments, she really broke that down. and was like, I don't care about this. Like, I thought I cared about this. But it is like, her actually having sex with Tony is sort of like this conscious choice that she's making and this conscious choice to sort of discard that piece. And I think we still see sort of the implications of that. We still see her the next morning, like sitting there, she has her cross and seems to be struggling with that. And I think it's probably twofold. A it's, you know, internalized homophobia, but it's also like that other piece about this sort of idea of premarital sex.
0: I think just to add to that, I'm interested to see how she reconciles it moving forward. I have a feeling that, and this is kind of what I hope for her, even though I'm not super religious, like I hope that she's just able to still be cool with God. (laughs) (laughs) Non-religious people talk religion, volume episode 16, (laughs) a.k.a. me. Um, I hope she's able to like reconcile that she could still believe in God and like believe in the teachings of religion without necessarily needing to adhere to the standard of religion that, like, she was led to believe is like what she should believe, you know? Like, I hope she's able she to, like, come, you, look,
1: you, hope, you hope she can come to terms with her faith, right? And...
0: Yeah, and like, still, because I think that's what's really, I don't I have no idea, but like, I think that is what can be really hard with being gay and also growing up in religion is like having to pick one or the other and not necessarily seeing the denominations and seeing the people who are able to navigate both of those things and like find healing and peace in both a queer identity and also an identity as like someone who believes in God.
1: Well, and also Shelby coming to the understanding that, you know, community and faith aren't always necessarily synonymous. Right. Right. And so when she That's what her dad is saying to her, right? Like, if you are gay... You're going to be alone. You're going to be alone. You lose your community. And so understanding the way the community exists in, like, different places throughout faith and, like, the different ways and being able to separate them will be a really important piece for her. But she does Jesus, so hopefully she'll get there. And that turmoil that Shelby feels, that hurricane that's inside of her, all of that self-doubt about who she is and how she relates to the world results in a Shelby that is just seeking peace. And so when we think about the things that she wants, that is something she really wants. She wants to get to a point of peace, peace with herself, peace with the people she loves, peace in sort of the way that she navigates the world. She talks about that sense with the detectives about feeling unsettled in her own skin, that idea of hitting the pause button, that idea of wanting to be in a space where you can feel comfortable with yourself and can, you can kind of quell all of those other pieces that are going on. We also can see the ways that she struggles when peace is disrupted. I think a great example of this is when they're digging up Jeanette's grave. And so the way that, you know, we associate being laid to rest with peace. And so she sees it as like the disrupting of the peace is someone who is at rest. And so the question is, you know, why does Shelby find this so disturbing? Um, And in some ways, is she just looking for her own peace and, and how does she connect that back to this idea of Becca who, you know, was struggling and has been like laid to rest and things that, that concept that always comes back for all of them, where they've been carrying so much weight and carrying so much pain that they just need to be able to stop and to be able to find that semblance of balance. And I think in some ways, not to validate Gretchen, but like the island gives them that, that reconnection to the earth gives them that. Because even when they're talking about finding that empty grave, you know, Martha gets really upset about this idea of Jeanette floating alone. But Shelby comes and says, you know, the earth is holding her. She talks about the way that you can get that piece from the ground, that you can get that piece from the earth, that you can belong to something bigger. We always think about Tony as the one who's really grounding herself on the earth, who's always playing in the sand. But if you look back at Shelby's episode when she's at sort of those darkest moments, her hands are also in the sand, right? She's also looking for that way to re-ground herself in the earth. That concept of looking for peace, of looking for zen, as Nora calls it, connects all of them as this sort of common goal that they're trying to work towards.
0: So for each of the duo episodes, we like to pick a special theme where we take a deep dive with the duo and talk about something that resonates with each of them. So today's special theme, we're going to take a look at a life wasted.
1: I think the concept of a life wasted is most immediately prevalent for Doc. We see her struggle with it throughout the entire episode. And there's a really like beautiful direct quote that Mateo says to Dot, where someone lives so hard for someone else, they forget to live for themselves. This carries through. It's involved with, you know, the way that Tim talks to Dot as he's passing away about wanting her to go and find that, like go explore that great big wide world, right? And Dot's idea of needing to do something with her life and her sense or feeling that she hasn't done anything with it.
0: Yeah, and we talked about this a bit in the episode when it came up is when after Martha kills the goat, Dot and Martha sit down and Dot really comforts Martha. And it feels like and sounds like she's talking about the goat, but you can't not feel like she's not also internalizing it. So she says to Martha, he wanted you to live. He was willing to go and move on because he knew you deserved a chance at a real life. So don't blow it. I think this is, in part, Dot making further peace with her dad wanting to pass by kind of assisted suicide, I guess you can call it. Where he said that he had seen to Dot being cared for, and he also said as he was passing the great big world's gonna come calling and it's not gonna happen all once and you're gonna need to answer it but it's always really interesting because it's like when dot's talking to martha in this moment she's like so don't blow it and it's like well what are you gonna do you're on an island you're the only reason they're alive like maybe she needs to work to be able to see the ways in which she keeps them all alive it could also be that maybe she's trying to reconcile because it's around the same time that she feels like this might be the end of them and so it might make her feel like her dad passed to let her live and that she's gonna pass it in this way and she never really got to experience it I'm not sure but
1: I think it's connected though to what you were talking about earlier where the ways that Dot did everything to care for her dad and how she's sort of repeating that pattern on the island mm. and repeating it almost sometimes to the detriment of her building relationships of her building safety nets of building structures I think she feels like in the the act of repetition she's not doing anything different and i think like maybe that's the key she wants something different because we see her talk with fatten about moving with her to la but that idea of you know actually making your life mean something means to do different things means to experience different things means to travel in different ways
0: you just had a bing, bing, bing moment for me because a line that always stuck out to me and it's when they find Martha's stuff is Martha gets really excited over Uno and Dot has like a really quick reaction that like kind of feels a bit abrupt and abrasive with somebody as sweet as Martha. And she's like, listen, we all love Uno. Everyone loves Uno. But if you make a stink over one more non-essential item, because I think Dot's still really focused on that survival element. But it's interesting because later on as we're, In the last episode, Dot's playing Uno It's part of the beauty of
1: it, though, right? It's after that conversation with Martha, right? And she's kind of, like, moving back into that relational piece.
0: Well, and having that opportunity to be a young person. And I guess she also is the person who leads, and this is before Martha, but leads that major closeout sale and says, you know, we were robbed of this beach vacation. Let's enjoy it. Let's have it now. And so, yeah, hopefully she's able to keep kind of undoing that like really big sense of responsibility that she has for these girls. She could still be responsible, but she can also play
1: a little bit of Uno. Conversely, I think if we think about Dot wanting to experience something different, Dot is being pretty secure in herself, but her idea of not wasting her life is going and experiencing new things. Shelby is backwards, right? So Shelby's concept of a life not wasted is tied to the concept of living a life where you are authentically you. That's her struggle. So if Dot would struggle with not going and doing something with her life, Shelby would struggle with the idea of being someone other than who she is. And so that's tied to all of those ways and ideas Around to what degree does she believe in the things that she was taught by her father versus the innate knowledge of, like, who she is? And in what ways does she struggle with that, right? In what ways does she actually become herself? And would her life be wasted if she lived it as not who she was? There's this line that Quinn says to Nora in Nora's episode um, when he's talking a little bit about Rachel. And he says, you just listened to her opinion and swallowed it whole because it mattered to you more than your own. And that's so connected to Shelby and her dad, to the ways that she's been told things by Dave and is now finding out that she can confront those on the island, to the way that she's dismantling and unpacking the things that he's told her to be able to understand She has to live for herself and she has to do things for herself and do things that make her feel good and make her feel the most true and authentic to who she is as a person.
0: In a lot of ways, I feel like we see the most authentic version of Shelby when she's in that bedroom with Becca and she's showing the looks, even though the looks are associated with the pageant, like Becca's eating Skittles or on the beanbag, you just get the sense that they've done this a million times before. My favorite moment
1: with the three and the wiggle. And the wiggle, of course. Fucking love Becca.
0: And so it's interesting because I think Shelby wants to, like, make her life smaller. You know, like, she could see this pathway where, like, her life is really big. Like, she's a pageant princess. She, like, has the opportunity to, like... But it's not big. I don't...
1: No, I think you're right. But yeah,
0: where she, like, has these, like, opportunities to be a pageant princess. that she can, like, have this, like, big church community and, like, do a lot of good in the world, like, through that. Even if she's just, like, someone's wife. So she has this, like, big life that she kind of wants to make smaller and make more intimate and build these really solid connections and the contrast with Dodd is like she's had this solid insular core and what she hears from her dad and what her desire is is to have this big life so she wants to take the small life and make it a lot bigger to see the world to answer the world's calling
1: and i think that's it though right it's Like, a larger thesis of the show, which is for each of these girls, like, what an ideal life is, what a not-wasted life is, has been mapped out for them. And it's about them figuring out, like, what it actually means for themselves. Like, you have to figure it out on your own, for yourself. No one like knows your kind of heart but you and so in the same way like dot and shelby are struggling to figure out like what they want like what would a meaningful purposeful life look for them leah struggles with the same thing to know her path fatten struggles with the same thing martha struggles with the same thing all of them are standing in this place where they're questioning Who do they want to be? What do they want to be? And how do they define that for themselves when they're faced with all of these pressures and expectations of all of the people around them?
0: Speaking of broader theses of the show, I think it's really time for us to transition to our ultimate matriarch, why Gretchen picked them. (laughs) So I love everything about Dot, but something I find really fun about her story is the number of theories that people have about who she is and how she came to be. And so certainly we've seen the theory that Gretch is Dot's mum. We've seen the theory that like Matteo played an instrumental role. And I think the theory, which we talked about in Dot's episode, and I think it's, in my opinion, is still the clearest one, is that there's some sort of like a Tim Gretchen military connection. I do want to say that, I think there's a lot of legs to, like, Matteo being involved. Matteo is the person that, like, works on Dot, both with the line of you need to live for yourself, and also he's the one that hands her the card of Gretchen. But on the other hand, I don't think that both things can be true. I think while we see Matteo kind of reinforce it, I do think he's just reinforcing Tim's wishes. And the reasons I'd say that is... Tim, first and foremost, is the one that gives her that trip to Hawaii. And at first I was like, oh, maybe there isn't a connection. Maybe Gretchen makes two attempts to get Dot, one through Tim, one through Mateo. But Dot, when she meets Gretchen at the end of her episode, says, I need to go on this trip, which is the connection back to Hawaii. So I do think that it's coming from her dad. And more than that, before her dad passes away, he says something along the lines of, I wasn't going to pass away until I knew you were going to be safe, but I've seen to that. I've seen to it. And the way that he says it with so much conviction to me indicates trust. It indicates really feeling confident and secure in the what the systems he's put in place are. And so to me, I think it's symbolic more of a previous relationship with Gretchen or maybe ch- someone on Gretchen's team that he really feels safe and secure and Matteo is just the person that reinforces
1: it. I disagree. What? (laughs) So uh, Jimalyn and I were talking about this. We were talking about the ways that Mateo has access to be able to get information into the house. And so while I think that Tim may have formalized all of the pieces, I think that Tim was pretty, unless, you know, Dot is Gretchen's mom or there was that pre-existing military connection, I do think that Tim was pretty inaccessible. For Gretchen to reach to so I like the idea that Mateo was the one who brought in the idea like made, brought it to Tim brought it to Dot like is doing some of that kind of like legwork to like worm into the Campbell household
0: no <laughs> oh okay well if you say no I think the conviction of Tim is too
1: deep the conviction of tim
0: yeah the conviction of Din that he's seen to it and that he's so safe and comfortable with it that he's willing to pass away even though he could probably have waited until dot turns 18 is too strong for him to be twisted by mateo who we just met no he did
1: not just mateo was already a staple in that fucking household when we came in Eight hours a day, he was there every day. You bond with your caregiver, too. So it would have been a strong connection between the two of them. Who knows if he brought Gretchen into that house, right? Like, what do you mean he just met Mateo? He knew enough about his cooking to say it was shit. Yeah, because that's his job when he does there. He cooks and provides medicine and cleans and cares. He's he's like a PSW, right?
0: Doesn't seem like a lot of time for them to form deep relationships when he's busy. He... (laughs)
1: He's there for eight hours a day. He's also there for companionship. Like the entire day that Dodd is at school, Mateo is there with Tim. We don't have to like come to an agreement on this. It's well, okay. We'll never. Yeah, we'll never. It's okay to like sit on opposite sides of this. You think that Tim was more of the connection. And I think that Mateo played a bit of a bigger role. I know you like his hair, but like. Your hands get lost in it. <laughs>
0: I also just want to shout out. Uh, we watched. So Tim is played by a gentleman named I think it's Greg Brick. We watched him in another movie oh, yeah, that was, was queer. And so number one, thanks Greg Brick for like single handedly carrying queer media. We must <laughs> appreciate it. Uh, maybe maybe we'll try to reach out to you. Maybe you can come on the podcast so we can pass on our our gratitude. But secondly, very weird to see him in a different role. One that was in like a kind of a horror movie. We don't want to spoil it. But I,
1: also, I also had just like so much trust of him because he was Dot's yeah. dad. So I had a really hard time like seeing him as like the villain. It was, it was just, it was very startling for me. Anyways, thank you, Greg Brick. Appreciate you.
0: I didn't actually answer the question of why Gretchen picked Dot. Uh, I think we've talked about this a fair bit in other episodes, but Dot is just... So multifaceted, so multi-layered. Her leadership, her resilience, the skills of which she possesses. Gretchen must have had a really good sense of her before she sent her there, because we see Dot as one of the girls in which she has a conversation with before she goes, and whether or not she's like actually another Confederate, I don't really know. I'm like not in the Dot is another Confederate camp, but she knew that Dot had like a resiliency and a heartbeat, like a heartbeat to keep it going, a heartbeat to build the society, to build the girls up, that she'd be looking for that. And what's also really neat about Dot is Dot doesn't have the desire as some of the girls to like go home. She wants to build a life, but she's still a minor. And so it's almost parallels a little bit with the Rachel when she's at the top of the cliff, like don't you have anything waiting for you at home? kind of thing where Dot can be on that island forever. Like she doesn't, she's not accountable to anybody. She's not trying to get back to a relationship or someone that really depends on her. And so she has that ability because she's not unsettled with that, Will we won't we be rescued? She has that ability to be thoughtful about their survival and thoughtful about the future. That foresight to dig Jeanette's body up, that caution about what was out in the woods that could hurt them. She has the ability to think about those things because she has made peace in some way with that they're there and they're on that island. So that's why I think she picked Dot through Tim, not Mateo.
1: We're going to end this pod episode at such odds. It's a pod at odds, Allie! A pod at odds, Rachel. So I'm going to start off with the non-controversial pieces about why I think Gretchen picked Shelby.
0: This is going to be a mess because we're just
1: throwing controversy everywhere. Yeah, and then we're just going to be like, well, have a nice day. Have a nice day. Obviously, Shelby has low-key survival skills, right? Like, definitely not as apparent as Dots, but she has hunting skills. No one else really has those. She knows how to gut an animal. No one else really knows how to do that. She has, like, some of these sort of, like, Hard skills that if you were going to be stuck on that island long term, you would want to have access to. I think, like, those pieces around her bravery, those pieces around, you know, the way that she goes out, like, a lot of the sort of like quests or missions (laughs) or hunts or hunts uh, that we see them all go on. Like, Shelby is a part of all of them, right? Like, obviously, everyone's there for the hunt for fatten, but she goes up the mountain. She goes looking for water with Tony on day one. She's a part of the goat hunt. She's like, core to all of these sort of like journeys that they take and these sort of like acts of doing things, which is why we always talk about how it's like kind of rude to Shelby that she never gets credit for it. I also think there's something so important about the way that Shelby sees performativity that Gretchen would really want. Gretchen's coming into this with this idea that they're going to break down these layers of shit that society and communities have impressed upon these girls. There's no better case study for that than Shelby who literally is like a stereotype when she comes on the plane. There's actually so many parallels between Shelby and Jeanette and just like the ways that they project themselves on the plane. The way that you know Jeanette sort of is like doing this huge runoff list of like these are all the things that I am at the same time as Shelby is doing her. I do Jesus. I do pageants I do family which are three things that we actually see are the things that tie her down and hurt her and I think Shelby's just this perfect case study for what does it look like to break down all of these layers and I think that Gretchen wanted that right like she is the person who has the most complete the most practiced mask of all of them who isn't just absorbing certain pieces but who has an entire persona that she's built up so I think Gretchen wants to see to what degree that can be broken down. I think Shelby also has the highest potential for healing. She's quite broken, right? And like, I think she's also just like this excellent sort of case study for what it would be like to heal on the island, for having the potential to heal on the island, for having the potential, because so much of her upset and her pain is rooted to her family and rooted to their perceptions of her, that she just has this boundless potential to heal when she's removed from those systems. So I think that's important too. The other piece that I think is important, I think she wanted Shelby because she wanted Becca. Now, Rachel and I both kind of think that Gretchen maybe wanted Becca on the island. Rachel is very much in the camp of Gretchen wanted Becca Dot. I'm very much in the camp of Gretchen wanted Shelby Becca. Would have been another kind of close relational pair. Um, that sort of like concept of like childhood friends. They would have been a really nice contrast to Tony and Martha. And I think the ways that Becca in particular mirrors some of the trauma that Lynn experienced, mirrors some of the trauma that Martha experienced, she would have been such a strong person to have on the island. And so in like those senses and those shapes, I do think that Shelby was always supposed to be a key and be connected to Becca on the island. And I think in absence of Becca, Shelby is being given this opportunity to do things differently
0: yeah it's interesting I mean I think I I'm wholeheartedly in your camp that Becca was somebody that Gretchen really wanted it makes sense in terms of access to Becca too we know that Becca was 5150 and so if we're thinking about access to her through Gretchen through like a psychologist that's a really clear parallel well we know the complexity of Shelby's mask might have been that like she wasn't really talking to other people about it, and would have been really hard to access her in the same way that some of the other girls are accessible. It's interesting to think about if it was Shelby and Becca that Gretchen wanted, or if it was Becca and Dot. I'm thinking a little bit here about timelines, and so we see Tim give Dot the card at Christmas time, but that's probably around the same time that Becca passed away. And so it could have been like a last ditch effort to get another Texan was through the card with Dot. I mean, there's still a lot of time in between Christmas and the summer when we know that they go. So I do think that's interesting.
1: Or like the alternative is they wanted like Gretchen wanted all three. Like if we th- if we think about the Lynn, Leah, Fatten, which like all of them were from California hmm right like and lynn was like actually living in california presumably right and so like that's why she was like quote unquote from california because she knew sort of like the layout of those things i don't know sometimes i i think it's it's tricky and i i know that you feel that like i have a lot of questions for season two about like if Nora isn't going to be there like if helena howard isn't coming back then do they need a confederate on the island and i go back and forth about it a lot and i know that we often like to think about dot as a red herring but sometimes i wonder like is dot a red herring or was she only given limited information and then will she be given more information in season two in the absence of a confederate will alex come on the island and be like yeah remember when you agreed to this shit
0: Yeah, well, and I think there's a reason why it was kept open in some way. And there's a couple of other examples of, like, things that are kind of kept a little bit open. Like, we don't really know, for example, how Tony and Martha ended up there. It's extremely unclear how they ended up there. And even with Martha, we don't see Martha in the bunker. We don't see Nora in the bunker. Like, there's things that I think were intentionally kept loose to, like, give them some story flexibility. So I wouldn't be surprised if Dot were to be the Confederate, I would have to rescind her deserted island partner of the
1: series. No awards. you wouldn't. I would. Absolutely not. She deserved that shit.
0: No, she is a sneaky liar and <laughs> no more award. We're Do taking you- back the hardware. <laughs> no more tools and nails and stuff. <laughs>
1: Do you know what my favorite theory floating around is right now? What? I don't even know where it came from, but I've seen it a couple different places now.
0: Okay, hold on, hold on. Before you say it, listeners, make sure you're sitting down. Don't go, <laughs> like, don't operate any heavy machinery. So this is going to be ridiculous. I just know whatever's coming out is
1: ridiculous. What but is it, it? My favorite theory right now is that one person from every pair is a Confederate.
0: Okay, that's not that crazy. No,
1: it's not that crazy. I don't know why you didn't you, you need to oh, I don't know. People. I never know
0: what's going to come out of you.
1: Because if you really start to think about it, one person in each pair was in a worse off mental health position going into the island than the other so it would be leah with fatten as a confederate which makes all those weird moments shifty eyes the shifty eye fatten moments about someone choosing it makes sense right it would be uh, obviously nora and rachel obviously that one's not up for contention i think it would be dot as the confederate and shelby as the not confederate and so because Shelby was obviously spiraling in a very different way. Sometimes when I think about like redemption arcs, which we're going to talk about next episode, and I think about the ways of what the girls are trying to achieve on the island. Dot's always the fucking one who ruins all my theories and ruins everything I mapped out because her the place that she's in is so different from every single other girl. And then the last one, and I'll get a lot of hate over this, it would be Martha is the person and Tony is the confederate because Tony never we saw we never saw Tony in a bad enough place like not like the place that Leah was in not in like some of those like devastation places and so then were they brought along to once again give those people who the real focus of things on like a person to kind of rely on and keep them together
0: I think it's an interesting theory I think like It goes back to my confusion over, like, Gretchen cares about healing or not, or if she's just trying to build this other society, because if she does care about healing and is seeing this as, like, a therapeutic intervention that she's trying to test out, it's not, like, sustainable or scalable that, like, every person needs to have this, like, exact pair who could support them in some way through their mental health crisis. Also, they need to, like, make all these fake plane going down scenes. Also, etc. Like, it's just not a scalable intervention, but... Again, I don't know if Gretchen actually cares about healing and if that's what she's trying to assess.
1: I'm not saying I'm all in on this theory. I just think it's interesting. It's interesting to think about. I think it might be a little bit more complex than like the showrunners have necessarily gone into things. Like I think there, there is validity in the idea. And it, like Fatten is my biggest one though because that weird shifty, shifty eye. Eyes. Yeah, that shifty eye moment when Leah's talking about why anyone would choose this. Something to chew on. I mean, it's a weird place to leave it, but I think that's it. Why am I right right now, <laughs> We've just been like this whole time. We had this like lovely
0: episode, and then at the end, <laughs> you're like, "By the way, there's 40 confederates. Mateo's guilty." And
1: I just have saved... a nice day. <laughs> just chew I, on it. I just saved all oh my God, controversial stuff for the last. Uh... Well, take us out, Allie. I'm gonna go cry. <laughs> All right. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for joining us today for the very last of our duo episodes. I think this is our penultimate episode for this season. So we're looking at having one more come at you. And then I think I think that might be might be it for season one of us unless we decide to drop a couple of special episodes. I'll save all my like feeling blah 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 stuff for next episode um so we will see you in two weeks we're doing um a little bit of an episode that's focused around like special themes so i'm going to talk a lot about like redemption arcs um which i'm really excited for we also have some like like themes that are kind of like woven and like symbolism that's kind of woven throughout things um so it's going to be a little bit of like uh i don't know i'm 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 really excited for it so it's going to have a lot of Yeah, fun stuff that we've kind of been holding on to.
0: Yeah, kind of like episode 11 when we talked about our big four theories, but like a part two that's almost a little bit of potpourri. Some of the things that haven't really fit in other places that we want to give the time for. So we're really looking forward to that one coming at you in a couple of weeks.
1: As always, all of our social media handles are in the episode description. Uh, Feel free to come and chat with us, theorize with us. But otherwise, we will see you in... uh, We will see you... We will talk to you in two weeks and uh, i hope you're all well and i hope you're all safe have a great one folks bye everyone